Good morning, everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily in our Friday morning long-form episode. This is Trevor Hall, your host. Thank you so much for tuning in this week as we put out a lot of content. There was a lot of news out of the mining sector and the junior mining sector, uh, for matters of fact. So it, a lot to cover this week. We had some tremendous drill results out, some great interviews to, on the backs of those results as well. So if you missed anything, you can go to the website, miningstockdaily.com, and take a look at the episodes we published throughout the week. Thank you so much for our sponsors. We'd like to thank Arizona Sonoran Copper Company, Rio 2, Western Copper and Gold, and Integra Resources for their continued support of the podcast. And again, I might ask for the listener, if you if you wouldn't mind, do hit a review of the podcast on the network you use to listen to the content here. It does us a lot of good getting in front of new investors. And we're going to talk with Jared Dillon about this commodities trade a little bit. A lot of people think it's it's it's, it's happening this year. It's really happening given the uh, macro events and uh, price action here in the overall market. So uh, I think some people are going to be looking at hard assets. So let's uh, let's get it in front of them. If you have any questions for me, please shoot me an email, Trevor at ClearCreekDigital.com. I'll do my best to get to responding to those as best as I can. Uh, Two-part segment excuse me two-part episode today as i mentioned jared dillian of the daily dirt nap big general theme conversation about the markets and the skittishness in the markets here a little macro conversation with him and then we turn it over to justin hune the uranium insider for a long conversation about the uranium market what we saw last year and kind of his thoughts of 2021 great conversation both sides all right everybody let's jump into my chat with jared and we will see you at the end Have a great weekend, everybody. Be well. everybody welcome back into mining stock daily and our friday morning long form episode happy to welcome back uh for the first time this year the author of the daily dirt nap a newsletter that i receive and read uh every trading day that author is mr jared dillian jared welcome back to mining stock daily uh, happy new year my friend yeah happy new year uh we've got a lot to lot to cover here you know general theme here let's start off on the thirty thousand foot view is Really on the big boards here in the U.S., skittish markets all around. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's much, uh, you know, uplift as we've seen in the last two years, obviously. Um, you know, we'll get into a couple of these things on why that might be. But, you know, really the general theme, what are you seeing as far as sentiment when it comes to the breadth of these markets? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a bit of a roller coaster. Um you know, one thing I noticed on Twitter is that you have people who are bulls and they think the market's going up and you have people who are bears and they think the market's going down. You don't have a lot of people on Twitter who say that the market is going sideways, you know, um, which kind of feels like what's going on here. So basically what's happening is, um, you know, directionally, the markets aren't doing a lot. We had a little bit of a sell off and then a recovery, but uh, we've had a big, big rotation from growth into value that's been happening for a while. Uh, it kind of started when the ARC fund peaked and a lot of the Kathy Wood names have been selling off relentlessly. And that fund is now down about 50%. But you've seen a pretty good rotation into value names. And um, uh, 
you know, growth has outperformed value really for the last 10 years and or more. And it kind of feels like this could be the beginning of a turn into value. Um, so, you know, what I've been doing is uh, I've been I've been looking for big, ugly stocks with bad stories that are trading cheap with big dividends. Um, you know, and these are the types of stocks in these types of rotations, like they go up and people are like, well, why the hell are they going up? It doesn't, this is an ugly stock, you know, but that's the type of stuff that outperforms. I don't want to get into a whole lot of detail on which names, yeah. but um, that's what I'm looking at. How about the, 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 the term ugly? What do you mean by ugly? <laughs> other than, <laughs> you know, other than people like me. <laughs> well, I mean, just for the, you know, for an example, like a tobacco stock, that's an ugly stock. Like, you know, the, the business model is broken. It's, um, it's really no reason to buy a tobacco stock unless you're doing it for the dividends. Um, but even the tobacco stocks are up about 10, 15% in the last couple of weeks, you know, uh, and it's been part of this rotation. So, um, that's going to continue. And the same, the same thing happened 20 years ago after the dot-com bust, you know, there was this big rotation into value. And a lot of these, you know, ugly value names started to rally and people were like, what the hell is going on? And then it continued for another three years, actually it continued for another six years. So could you place the, the producer, the, the producers, the commodity producers into that basket of stocks as well? You, you can, although it's, it's really, it, it's, it, it's more complicated because, you know, commodity producers and financials. Um, are affected by factors other than the rotation. So naturally, commodity prices and the shape of the yield curve and interest rates. So you can pick banks and oil companies and stuff like that. It's just a little bit more complicated. What I'm really talking about is like industrial staples, consumer discretionary, stuff like that. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, speaking of commodities, it was pretty interesting. You noted it, I think it was in your your newsletter or Twitter or both, but there was an interesting Barron's cover. It was a two weeks ago uh, that kind of questioned uh, the boom in the commodities. Now that's kind of a contrarian look at things. And I, you've written about a Barron's cover before this uh, in your newsletter about how whenever something hits Barron's is usually is a sign of a top or it could be a sign of the top. But, you know, people are really into this commodities trade and started building last year. And it really, Kept on going here early this year, obviously higher oil prices, natural gas continues to rise, uh, that type of thing on the energy side. But let's talk about the commodities. Are you, are you feeling are you feeling as bullish as you maybe were last year after that Barron's cover? Uh, you know, to be to be candid, I would say no, I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm looking on my screen right now and you know, the ags are down and Oil's down a little bit, and oil's kind of a special case, but um, it's, you know, that cover had big sentiment significance. You know, if Barron's is piling into commodities, like after a six to nine month bull run, then it's usually a bad sign. So, um, you know, and Barron's, I don't want to beat up on Barron's too much. I mean, they're nice people and they do good work, but, you know, that newspaper used to have more predictive value back 20, 30 years ago. You know, I used to really, I used to read it religiously when I was in business school and I got a lot of ideas from Barron's. Hmm. And now it really, it just, it, it's more like journalism. You know, they, they write about, 
They, they act like journalists. They write about what's hot and what has been hot for the last six months as commodities. And, um, you know, they didn't try to predict that, but they're just reacting to it. And that's why it has sentiment significance. Well, this morning you were writing about the reaction on the inflation narrative, too, from from big media uh, giants. You know, we're hearing a lot about the concerns over inflation. I think you wrote like, well, why weren't you reporting anything a year ago when we knew this was going to start picking up? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It, I mean, and that that kind of troubles me about the inflation narrative, too. And even if you look at the numbers, you know, the rate of change of inflation is slowing. So CPI, you know, went from 6.2 to 6.8, and then it went from 6.8 to 7. So it's slowing down, and PPI came in, I think it was down today to 9.7. I think it was down slightly. So the, the inflation growth is slowing down. And, you know, I've said in the newsletter that I think it is going to moderate this year, partly because of what the Fed's doing. So that's, you know, theoretically bad for commodities, but I don't know. But it's not going to correct, right? I mean, we're still going to have hot inflation. I mean, once you consider, let's say next month it's six and the next month it's five, you know, coming down. What if we level that at four? We're still talking higher than projected inflation. Yeah, for sure. We're not going to get back down to two. That's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, yeah. Tell me what about, I'm sure you you just got a ton of questions and answered a lot of inquiries on Twitter and email about positioning for inflation. Uh, obviously, this is another one of those things that's, there, there's a big crowd into the inflation trade right now. Do you feel it's also much like the commodities trade kind of wearing thin? Um. I don't really see I, I'm, you know, unlike a lot of people, I'm very comfortable saying, I don't know when I, if I don't know the answer to the question, these are, these are things I'm, you know, I come into work and I stare at the screen and I try to figure it out every day. And I have a lot of exposure to the inflation trade, right? Mm-hmm. Like I have an inflation ETF. That's like my second biggest position and it's big. And, uh, you know, I think about it all the time. I mean, the one, the one good news, one piece of good news is, is that you know metals seem to be doing pretty well and gold seems to be doing pretty well, um, so that that kind of gives me hope. I mean, gold is acting better than it has in a really long time. Um, you know, gold has an infinite c- capacity to disappoint people. Uh, it's just been you know heartbreak ridge for the last couple of years, but um, you know it's a eighteen twenty and it's it's uh, it's it's acting. You know, Mark Minervini, you know, the guy that everybody ripped on because he uh, he didn't know the what the company did on CNBC. Mm-hmm. You know, he's actually a pretty smart guy. And he um, he, he said that you want to buy stuff that acts like tennis balls, you know, that stuff that bounces. And, uh, you know, it's funny is in the last couple of weeks, gold has started to act like a tennis ball, like it will sell off intraday and it bounces, you know, which it didn't do before. So the price action is changing very slowly. How about sentiment with gold? Do you think that is changing? Because people are throwing it out with the trash. Yeah, I don't think sentiment on gold has changed. I think it's still very negative, which I think is good. Uh, so do you feel, I, I know you have a gold position. You, you've, you've been open about this ever since you've been coming on this podcast and you write about it in the newsletter. You, you have a couple of positions in the gold trade. Would you be doing, or are you open to maybe expanding on that, or would you be potentially looking at miners if if maybe a technical level was hit on the gold price? Uh, 
I don't know the technical levels off the top of my head. Um, I mean, personally, I'm pretty much fully invested in gold and miners. I don't really have room to add to that position <clears throat> between physical gold and the uh, gold mining stocks. Uh, it's about 30% of my portfolio, and I really don't want to make it any bigger. Um, but I can tell you that if gold goes to 2,500 this year, I'm going to have a fantastic year. So some people are saying it potentially could do it this year. I, I mean, I'm looking, I've looked at the monthly chart and I know like gold does have a, it does disappoint people quite often. And when I get disappointed about it, I literally just kind of pull it back and look at the monthly chart and the monthly chart looks actually fantastic for gold. It's a really good looking chart. I actually haven't looked at the monthly chart. I'll have to check that out. Uh, but I mean, so a lot of people are saying if this, technically speaking, if this chart kind of fills this this handle on this cup and handle formation, I mean, the move up in gold could be pretty dang explosive. I, I mean, people are, you kind of get both baskets, right? Some people are saying twenty five hundred could come into play this year. Other people are saying that's too high. Um, you know, whether it happens this year or next year, or if it happens at all, I, I mean, I think it's. Very well could happen because gold just is, continues to do what it's supposed to be doing, you know, just other than just driving you crazy on the day-to-day nuances. Yeah, and the thing is, is that, um, you know, it sort of defies – I had this conversation with my intern the other day or somebody. Maybe it wasn't my intern. But, um, you know, all the, all the time that the Fed was printing money and the U.S. was handing out stimulus and we were just like pumping liquidity into the system, gold went down. And now that we're, we're withdrawing liquidity from the system, gold is going up. So I, I really don't spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about the fundamentals because a lot of times gold does the opposite of what the fundamentals say it should. Yeah. Uh, Let's go back to the Fed here. Uh, they, they've started, quote unquote, tapering, buying less uh, securities than they did the month before here. Uh, you know, I'm just curious on your thoughts here on this move in the bond yields, obviously, like just pulling out the tenure that's been rising. Um, you know, talk, talk to us so like what's your thoughts here that's coercing this move higher? Is it uh, the market itself preparing for a Fed rate hike? Uh, market doing what the Fed should have been doing a while ago. Um, you know, give, just give us give us some thoughts. You know, what, what's happening here? Well, so what's interesting is is that my view all along was that the Fed was going to hike rates and long term rates would stay pretty much unch and the curve would flatten. It would flatten and then it would invert and we would get a recession and that was kind of my plan. Um, since the beginning of the year. You know, long-term rates, 10-year rates have gone up about 30 basis points, which is a lot. Uh, and the curve hasn't really flattened. It's really been sort of a parallel move, um, which is kind of what happened in February of 1994 uh, when the Fed started hiking interest rates and the whole curve went up at the same time. Um, so, you know, I had been telling people up until recently you know, actually, I had conversations with like real estate appraisers and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, you don't really have to worry about um, tenure rates going up or mortgage rates going up because the, the curve's going to flatten. And it actually hasn't happened. You know, we've had this parallel shift in the curve. Um, so I've been a little bit surprised by that. I think there's resistance, uh, you know, somewhere around 2% in tens, maybe 195 to 2. Um, and the thing about the bond market, is that 
you know, you have a bunch of fixed income investors that are really starved for yield. You know, they've been dealing with 1% or less than 1% interest rates for a couple of years now. And when interest rates rise and they get out to say, you know, 192%, that's going to look really attractive to a lot of people. And a lot of money is going to come into the bond market. Now, it's not saying that interest rates can't go higher. But what I'm saying is, is that it's the, the process of rates going higher is going to be very slow. Okay, it's not, I, I don't think we'll have a situation where tens go from 2% to 4% in a month. I really, I don't see that happening. So I think it's going to be slow. I think it's going to be measured, but it's going to be a little bit like death of a thousand paper cuts. What would be the implications on like the NASDAQ and the tech stocks with a slowly grinding and rising interest rate? Well, I mean, it, it's it, it just feeds into this, you know, this style rotation from growth into value. I mean, that's really what's driving this, you know, especially since the beginning of the year, you know, higher rates have been driving this rotation out of growth. So that's going to continue, which is why I think, you know, I mean, even if you just like you didn't want to pick stocks and you just wanted to buy a value mutual fund or a value ETF, like I think that would be a pretty good trade for the next two to three years. Okay. Uh one of the things I really enjoy reading from the Daily Dirt Nap is things that are not about the markets. <laughs> like you really, you really mm-hmm. open up a, a lot, and you share a lot about your personal life and uh, your past and what you're doing now. It's it's really, uh, it's entertaining and informative at the same time. And so, but kudos for, uh, you know, really not putting up a barrier in in, in what you're writing. Uh, but I do want to get some thoughts here, and this has to do a little bit with markets, but a little bit more of your thoughts on where we are culturally. Uh, and I kind of described to you before we started recording about, um, so two blocks from my house, we have a grocery store workers strike. It's a Kroger, Kroger grocer. And, uh, we're on day two now and it, and I'm not, I don't pull any judgment on the strike itself by any means, but I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on the bigger context here as far as workers having the leverage here, uh, in, in the economy, you know, if you think about it in a real estate market, is it a buyer's market or is it a seller's market? And this economy, and with what we've seen with inflation and higher wages, and just with what's happened from the from the pandemic, it seems like this has turned into a workers' leveraged economy. Not only with the grocery store, but we've seen talks of Amazon going on, workers going on strike, Starbucks workers going on strike. You know. Kind of, how do you, how do you kind of take this all in and kind of break it down and, and get some generalized thoughts on where we are culturally when it comes to the workplace? Well, I don't even know if this is really a cultural question. I mean, I think, I think it's purely economics. I mean, what you've had is a lot of people that have left the labor force. So the labor force participation rate has gone from 67 to 61. And the unemployment rate itself is 3.9%, which means that the existing labor market, not including the people who are out of the labor force, the existing labor market is pretty tight. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really just a function of supply and demand, and people have the ability to bargain for higher wages. You know, I think unions are a little bit outdated. I think we're kind of past the point where we're talking about, like, you know, workplace safety and stuff like that. I think most workplaces are pretty safe. I mean, it's not like the days of Upton Sinclair, but, Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, if, if a bunch of, if you have a bunch of people that are making $15 an hour and they look around and they say, well, you know, we have bargaining power because 
who the hell else are they going to hire? Who else is going to work here so we can demand higher wages? You know, the funny thing is, is that in the last year, all these debates about the minimum wage have totally disappeared. You know, the minimum wage is still seven twenty-five dollars an hour. And I would say that the number of people who are making seven twenty-five dollars an hour is pretty close to zero. Like nobody is making seven twenty-five an hour. In fact, nobody is making $15 an hour. People are making more than that. So, you know, it's, it's taken all the pressure off that minimum wage discussion. And, you know, I think you're going to see low-skill workers over the next couple of years making $20, $25, $30 an hour. Hmm. You, you mentioned the, the, the labor market. We are at 3.9% unemployment. And do you think after everything we've been through, that's about as uh, capped up as we can get? I mean, is that... I mean, are we full employment at this point as best we can do? Well, I mean, from the Fed's standpoint, uh, you know, once the unemployment rate went below four, I think they said, okay, like we don't have to focus on the employment side of the mandate. We can focus on the price stability side of the mandate. So um, I think from the Fed standpoint, we're at full employment. Unemployment can go lower. You know, 3.9 was the bottom in 2000. Uh, we got to 3.5% under Trump. If this labor market gets tighter and tighter and tighter, it could go below three. It's very possible. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, Jared, kind of looking ahead, I mean, you, 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 put, you put a lot of, a lot of stuff out here to think about, you know, just kind of wrap things up is beginning of the year. How are you, you're patiently looking at this. You, you don't you think you don't know what you don't know. But, you know, how would you give advice to people uh, other than reading the newsletter on how to kind of approach these markets? And I mean, given all this volatility that we're seeing right now. Well, this is this is a bit of a this is going to be a challenging year. You know, I mean, the last I mean, the, the last couple of years were pretty easy if you were done. Right. Mm-hmm. If you were just getting along and, you know, riding it higher. Um, you know, the market has returned close to 50% in the last two years, and it doesn't get any easier than that. This is going to be a much more difficult year. Um, I think people are experiencing that with some of the growth stocks that have fallen apart in biotech and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just going to be tougher. Yeah. Uh, on a side note, uh, not only do you write the newsletter, but you also launched a Substack, and you got a new podcast out as well, don't you? It's, it's not new, but it's kind of a, a reworked. Yeah, so the original podcast was uh, part of the radio show, and right. now it's a true podcast. So it's called the Be Smart Podcast, and you can just look up Be Smart on iTunes or something like that. Uh, the Substack is its actually something I have to do for one of my writing classes. Oh. Um, and so it's a class assignment, but I do want to turn it into a large free newsletter. I do want to have a big distribution, but the Substack, I'm not even writing about finance. I'm writing about, you know, culture and sex and funny stuff and bullshit. And just, you know, I'm really just screwing around and it's huge amounts of fun. It's huge amounts of fun. I'm having a blast. So within two days of launching the Substack, I got 1200 subscribers. Wow. So if you want to subscribe to the Substack, just look up where we're going to get those bastards. That's the name of it. <laughs> look up where we're going to get those bastards on Substack. And uh, it's 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 going to be a lot of fun. 
Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. You know, we we launched MSD Extra on Substack last week, and we went from the first day, the morning, we had ten followers, and at the end of the day, we had like five hundred. So it, it, it's pretty crazy how quick uh, how quick your following can grow on Substack. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty great tool. Uh, Jared, I appreciate your time. It's good to catch up with you, and, and uh, you know we'll, this won't be the last time this year you and I will touch base. I look forward to reading the newsletter, and uh, maybe uh, later this winter, early spring, uh, we'll get you back here on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always love coming on. Yeah, this is Jared Dillian from the Daily Dirt Nap, everybody. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Justin Hewn, the Uranium Insider, talking all about the uranium trade. Uh, that's been a hot market. Stay tuned. Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily. Uh, we are finally able to connect with a returning guest, somebody that we speak to pretty frequently. In fact, last year, uh, it was really a transformative year, not only for Justin Hewn, the Uranium Insider, uh, but for a lot of the uranium traders and people speculating in the space in the year 2021. Uh, so we're happy to welcome back Mr. Justin Hewn. Hey, Justin. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Trevor. Yeah, happy to be back. Thanks. How are you doing? Yeah. I, I'm doing pretty well, thank you, uh, and uh, I'm glad to uh, start off the new year. Listen, uh, the it, I don't think it needs to be said much and, and pounded on, but the uranium trade really, it was a transformational year last year for the uranium market, anywhere from the spot price uh, to the explorers and developers. Uh, we don't need to rehash every little minute detail, but there's some big. It was a big. It was a big year, 2021. Uh, you know, looking back, your year in review. How do you kind of describe everything that happened in the last 365 days? Oh man, it was quite a whirlwind. Um, it obviously was a was a strange year in general, just kind of geopolitically and everything going on with COVID and the new president in the United States and just a, a whirlwind year in general. Um, and the markets were no exception, right? We had a really strong bull market in the broad market. And then we had uh, just a, an epic year for uranium. I would call it a confirmation year. I think that 2020 really marked the bottom, at least for the equities. So the bottom for uranium as a commodity was t- late 2016. And the equities generally underperformed for a number of years in uh, relative to the commodity. So that March 2020 flush really got the bottom in the equities. They moved a bit off the bottom from March through the end of the year and December 2020, right up into the end of the year is when things really took off for uranium, um, especially the equities. And so we had a really strong bull run from December until June. We had a really good pullback, about a 35% pullback into August, another strong run with the advent of the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust buying in the market. That was probably the biggest catalyst in the uranium space over you know, a five-year period, in my opinion, since I've been following this sector. And that was really kind of the story was this quote-unquote secondary demand coming from the financials that really stepped up. And prior to Sprott coming into the space, you know, there definitely was some other secondary demand coming from Uranium Participation Corporation that Sprott took over, coming from Yellow Cake, uh, coming from 
you know, pre-production companies in the uranium space earlier in 2021 buying physical uranium to the tune of close to 10 million pounds between uh, UEC, Denison, Encore, a number of other companies, uh, obviously Cameco. And so, you know, I think that this secondary demand story is really a big deal in the uranium space, and it's going to be a bigger deal going forward. So I, I figured 2020 was kind of the bottom for equities, essentially, in the uranium space. 2021 was the confirmation year where, okay, this is real. This is actually happening. We are in a bona fide bull market for uranium. I mean, you know, the commodity last year was up 40%. URA, the most liquid and largest ETF, was up 57%. URNM, which is the largest pure play ETF in the space, was up almost 80%. And our focus list portfolio was up 122%. For 2021 so it was an absolute watershed year for uranium and for us as well and i think that uh that big things are coming this year and beyond for uranium this year could be a continuation you think i do yeah and i don't you know i, I tend to shy away from short-term predictions sure. but there's a number of catalysts coming forward well first of all you have even from very conservative uxc which is probably the most prominent nuclear fuel consultant um, they're, they've been historically very conservative to the frustration of, uh, you know, investors who have done the work in the space and recognize some of their forward calls and their forward projections in the space have been, I mean, wrong is not necessarily the right word, but uh, overly conservative and lacking in foresight. Hmm. And so they, they have been, um, you know, lacking in their, in their projections in terms of expectations for the market and the price of uranium up until let's say the past 12 months or so they've started to change their tune um, so they are calling for a uh, 50 million pound roughly supply deficit for this year alone and they say uh, they expect a 200 million pound demand that's a structural demand that's actually what's being burned in the reactors um, globally plus a bit of inventory restocking that they expect and then uh, on the supply side, they expect about 135 million pounds of primary uh, production plus some secondary supply. So they actually predicted a bit more than 150 million pounds on, on, the sec on the total between primary and secondary, but they count inventory drawdowns as secondary supply. Mm. So that's actual double counting of those pounds. That's not something that we do. So we figure uh, about 135 million pounds primary production plus about 15 million pounds secondary production. So that's underfeeding, tails re-enrichment, et cetera. So we figure about 150 million pounds total supply, 200 million pound structural demand, and then you have to factor in the secondary demand. So the UXC estimates, because you can't really model out financial demand, it's impossible to predict accurately, right? Because that's based on investment flows fundamentally. We figured we could see another 25, 35, even more million pounds per year secondary demand in 2021 uh, excuse me 2022 sprott has already purchased 1.8 million pounds of uranium this year so far we're in week two so it's entirely possible that that estimation is even conservative so we're setting up for a huge huge structural supply deficit for 2022 on top of you know what we're seeing potential disruptions in Kazakhstan, although that seems to be stabilizing a bit here, at least in the short term. Still a big unknown, still a big concern for global utilities in terms of security of supply. 
Um, and of course, there's, you know, there's always worries about the broad market, which seems to be the biggest impediment to funds flowing into uranium. But I think it's just a matter of time before we see the next strong move higher in the commodity and the next chunk of uh, institutional money flowing into the space. Hmm. And that that has, as far as the reactors and the people that would be producing energy from the uranium, is there any sort of sign that anything new would be coming online this year? Because I, I don't think I've heard anything other than it's like small module reactors potentially. Yeah, there will be a number of reactors coming online in China. Okay. I believe there's uh, another one coming online in India. There's a number of countries that have reactors coming online. There's a number of countries that have reactors coming offline. Um, so, but on balance, it's a net growth in the sector for 2022. Okay. Okay. And that, in those, in those additions and subtractions are pl- put into account in this forecast for the, for this year. Correct. Correct. Yeah. That, that expected total demand of roughly 185 million pounds, um, not to count the inventory restocking, but around 185 million pounds is the expected demand. And that's actual fuel burned in reactors that are up and running and initial core loads for reactors that come online, which is two to three X in annual, annual uh, burn rate. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, Justin, I love having this conversation. It's something I keep on hitting home because when it comes to the energy creation from nuclear ener- from nuclear reactors, it it's always seems like it's two steps forward, one step back. You know, like I think the the public is starting to understand. Um, just how effective in green nuclear energy is and what it takes to produce that energy. However, uh, you know, a lot of state and local governments still don't, aren't seeing the light here. And uh, there's still talk about shutting nuclear reactors down uh, here in the United States even. So, you know, in the transformative year that we had in the market side, what about the public perception side? The public perception side continues to move in our favor, in a nuclear's favor, I would say. Um, It's slow in some countries, uh, especially countries that have other agendas in terms of um, energy policy and perhaps, uh, you know, subsidies and things like that that go into uh, renewables, etc. That that sector is is ripe for that type of um, financial incentives and manipulation, especially with the the, the green agenda, etc. However, it definitely nuclear is definitely getting more of a recognition as being a green energy, as you mentioned. Um, nuclear is finally included, at least in the draft of the EU uh, green taxonomy. This is something we've been speculating on for a number of years, and essentially what that means is, if it's uh, you know set in stone that nuclear is included in the EU taxonomy, um, nuclear new nuclear builds will be. Um, allowed to access green, you know, low cost, low interest rate green financing, quote unquote, green financing. It also gives nuclear as a green, it gives it a green stamp of approval for potential ESG type investments um, in the EU. So that's a pretty big deal for the EU because it's a mixed bag, right? You have Mm -hmm. Germany essentially now against nuclear, although that is shifting because they've been in such a such a hardcore energy crisis in Europe and Germany, especially. They've had to ramp up their coal production and their coal-fired power plants to make up for it. And in the heart of winter, in the heart of this energy crisis, they just shut down three of the remaining six nuclear reactors. And there's even members of the German government that are kind of like, yeah, this is not the right thing to do, but we just can't reverse course now. And there's still a good chunk of the populace in Germany that is against nuclear. 
um, due to, you know, meltdown fears having that are still kind of a carryover from Fukushima. But then you have other situations like Sweden, who actually did decide to shut down a couple of reactors um, last year. They made the decision last year. And now they have uh, new leadership coming into the year who's totally behind nuclear's inclusion in the green EU taxonomy. In fact, they've even gone so far as to suggest that that this um, that there not be a time limit because the draft taxonomy says that nuclear will be um, allowed to have access to the green financing through 2045. And Sweden's saying, why even put an expiration on it? It's green. Keep it in for as long as we can. And they're saying, you know, we shouldn't have a requirement for there to be centralized uh, repositories for the nuclear waste. Um, we will figure that out in time or it can be stored at the facilities as it is in the United States. Let's get hmm. this thing going now. So even a country like Sweden is reversing course. So it's it's a slow process. It's like doing a 180 in a, in a giant tanker ship. It takes you know a number of hours. <laughs> That's the analogy there um, to turn around. But it is turning and the sentiment has made a drastic shift in the past three years, even in the United States here. So it's good to see and it bodes well for nuclear's growth out in the rest of the decade and beyond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Justin... We mentioned the Sprott Uranium Spot Physical Uranium Trust coming on onto the market this year. It really was the tide that lifted all boats in the uranium se sector, specifically the developers and explorers. I'm just curious, you know, have you done any analysis as far as the correlation between moves in the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust and the reaction with these junior uranium explorers? That you know, what can we take from this? Well, generally, the junior, junior uranium mining stocks are leveraged to the price of the commodity. So the, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust pretty closely tracks the commodity. It'll trade at periods of, of a discount and premium to the net asset value. Um, you know, it's always kind of at a rough discount or rough premium to the net asset value of a couple percentage points. And you'll have extremes. It traded down to a discount to NAV in December of close to 10%. You know, it was close to a 15 plus percent premium to NAV back in September of last year. So, but for the most part, it tracks the commodity. So really what we're talking about is how are mining stocks leveraged to the commodity itself. And um, the leverage is great, but it really matters what you buy. You know, there are some junior uh, developer stocks in the uranium space that have underperformed Cameco since the bottom of the commodity in 2016. There are some junior stocks that have done almost 100x since 2016. So it really, you know, buying a basket is, you know, diversifying a bit, of course, is a smart thing to do, a safe thing to do in such a volatile sector. But you really have to be pointed and intelligent about the companies that you buy. But the leverage is pretty substantial for the most part. Um, obviously, a rising tide lifts most boats. But there definitely are some stocks that have vastly underperformed the space and vastly outperformed the space. But generally speaking, I would say that you have, you know, two, three, four X leverage in mining stocks versus the commodity itself versus the Sprott Trust. Right. Uh, you, you did mention there's a couple of things coming down the pipeline with Sput. That is the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Uh, Sput sounds like will be put into the uranium, big uranium ETF. And uh, aren't they filing for the, an NYSC listing here pretty soon, which will make it accessible for a lot more people? Yeah, there's, there's a number of catalysts coming around the, around the spot vehicle. 
So the first, uh, I guess, in chronological order here would be them filing for that New York Stock Exchange listing this month. Um, it's possible they've already filed for it. Now, they expect that to be a six to nine month process. I think they're being conservative in that time frame because it is a little bit of an unknown. There has never been a uranium physical trust or fund on the Unix Stock Exchange. So because it's a new type of vehicle, it's going to take some time to go through that comment period with the SEC, etc. We're confident that they will get that listing. We think that Sprott would not have gone after UPC without having that longer term vision and confidence in ending up on the NYSE. And the NYSE is 13, 14 times bigger than the TSX in terms of money flow liquidity. So it's a major, major catalyst for the entire space and for that trust. Second would be um, the potential and hopeful inclusion into URA. And so for the past six months or so, there's been speculation on whether or not this would happen in the January rebalance. And um, URA has been really interesting. They're run by Selective. They have, um, they have stated in the past that foreign trusts are not allowed to be held by the, by the ETF, but they put out some messaging recently that says that that's been amended. So it's possible that they are be, will be included. <clears throat> if and when that happens, what you'll see is a temporary sell-off in the other underlying holdings, making room for what should be a 10% allocation in the ETF based on its market cap. But that will mean close to 2 million pounds of uranium purchase simply on that inclusion mm. based on the underlying buying they will have to do of that, uh, of that trust. But longer term, it means vastly more uh, funds flowing into this trust and therefore buying physical uranium. So it's a huge, huge thing if it is included, and hopefully it will be. And then lastly well, for Spud would be... Oh, go I'm, ahead. I'm sorry, Justin. I, I just, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but just on that thought... Let's say say Sput is included in the URA and at a ten percent allocation into that ETF. Sput has to go in and, and allocate money to buying physical uranium. What do you think will do to the spot price at that at that moment? Doing exactly that. Well, first of all, I mean the buying by the ETF will go. Let's see. Uh, I think that the URA um, AUM is roughly around. Uh, just over a billion. So they 10%, they should be about a hundred million. Let's say this is just rough back of the napkin math here. Yeah, yeah. Going going into Sput. So at 46 bucks a pound, that's about 2 million pounds. But of course, um, all of that money doesn't necessarily go directly to, to funding purchasing of uranium. It First of all, they would have to be at greater than a 1% premium to NAV for them to issue shares in the ATM. And then once they do issue shares in the ATM, then they, they will do, let's say, 50 to 60% of that daily volume will be via the ATM if they're at a premium to nav greater than 1%. But even if we just assume that they do end up purchasing around 2 million pounds from this inclusion to URA, um, what will that do to the spot price? It's hard to say. They purchased a million pounds last week on Friday um, in a single day, and it didn't really move the price that much. And so and my, my understanding of that has to do with they were out of the market and almost everybody else was out of the spot market for about six weeks. Hmm. And you have about a million and a half, two million pounds that just flows into the spot market on a consistent basis per month. So you figure two, three, you know, maybe a little bit more million pounds kind of came into the spot market since uh, spot has been out of the spot market and coming back into the market. So there's probably a little bit of uranium still sitting above ground. So um, until they come in pretty heavy and consistently, I don't expect huge moves in the spot price. 
But it's just a matter of time that until funds consistently flow into that vehicle again, when it's at a premium to nav, that the buying will be consistent. And I think that will, that will be moving the price pretty substantially. Okay. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. You had a third idea that you want to follow up on before I interrupted. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. The third is, is spot taking over uh, URNM in uh, late February. Um, that's when the shareholder vote will happen. I believe it's the 21st or 22nd. Um, it will pass, and they will be the marketing machine behind URNM going forward. Um, and, of course, Sput is a major holding in URNM, so you have just like this this massive kind of double flywheel effect here happening. And um, so that's late February. So that that's a pretty big factor. Um, I think, you know, I've been I've been pondering kind of what I see for the sector. I think the New York Stock Exchange listing is really the biggest deal for sput and the uranium space. And between now and then, I would like to see at least one or two periods of strong uranium buying um, to, to just briefly run through how I see that playing out would be some pounds will shake out again out of this carry trade if we get a backwardated market, which we should if the buying is heavy in the spot market. So I would like to see more of those pounds shake out of the carry trade. Let's get back up to the high 40s, low 50s, maybe even higher if we can hold there for a number of weeks or months. Then we see pounds shake out of the spot market and really clear out most, if not all, of the available kind of liquid inventory that's being held in carry or held in these uh, conversion facilities around the world. Shake that out. And when NYSE listing comes online and there's not much left available, we could potentially see really, really powerful moves in the spot price in the space. And that would be more like the second half of the year. So, um, you know, long story short, I see weakness that could come from the broad market or come from wherever in the space anytime in the next you know six months or so as being an extremely strong opportunity to position before that NYSE listing. How would you do that? How would you do that, Justin? Walk us through some ideas of how to position yourself before that eventually, hopefully happens. Well, I think, um, I mean, we, we have our own process for how we position. Um, we really like the developing companies. We like companies with management that we trust that has acted in a shareholder friendly manner um rather than buying the stocks that have vastly underperformed at this point i I would suggest looking for stocks that have had decent runs and have moved with the market that's kind of once you're into the first or second leg of a bull market you kind of want to find find the diamonds in the rough at that point there's not that many companies in the space so if you're going to go after the 10 20 30 million market cap companies that just haven't moved yet or have underperformed the market Usually at this stage, there's a reason for that underperformance. Um, if you're being a contrarian before a bull market really starts, so if we're talking you know, two plus years ago in the uranium space, that's when you're looking for those tiny companies that haven't moved yet because the sector hasn't moved yet. Now that the sector has moved, you kind of want to look for the companies that have responded to the general move in the market. Does that mean that your upside will be as great as gambling on a tiny cap explorer that might hit? Of course not. If you if you find an explorer that's a small cap still that hasn't run yet and they actually hit a discovery during the bull market, the stock price is going to absolutely explode. But that's a gamble. It's not something we, that we like to play in. So we like to look for the relatively strong companies in the space that have had a good correction with the overall uh, sector. You know, in December, we had about a 30% correction in the ETFs um, for the month of December or I should say late November into the end of the year. And so uh, we like those companies that have a strong share structure that the stock has outperformed the sector uh, over the past 18 months. 
and that they have a plan. What are they doing for the next two years, three years? What is their five-year plan? Um, how do they plan on executing? How have they executed so far? Um, and that's kind of what we look for and how we've been able to outperform the ETFs consistently. If you're listening to this and you're like, well, I just don't know where to start with that idea. Uh, Justin publishes the Uranium Insider newsletter. <laughs> I mean, he walks you all the way through some of these ideas in in a very thorough manner. And they also, you're still doing some webinars, I think once a month, isn't that right? Or is it once a quarter? It's once a month. Yeah, we have we have the next one coming up on Thursday. And there's there's a lot to get into, obviously. Um, and we typically have a, a special guest on each month as well. So this month we'll have um, the CEO from one of the companies that we hold and recommend who's done a really fantastic job on most of the fronts that I just mentioned. So um, should be a good turnout. Yeah. You know, I'm looking through, I, I have a page of all the of charts here from some of the junior developers in the space. And I got to say, like, after that big run up, I mean, a lot of these companies, their charts seem to be consolidating a little bit right now. You know, obviously down from those highs, but they're not falling. They're just kind of, you know, kind of trading in these ranges. It It, it looks pretty good here. You know, obviously this isn't investing advice by any means, but look at these charts. It seems pretty healthy after that big run up. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, it was it was a pretty gut wrenching pullback, to be honest. Um, you know, people that definitely washed out sentiment. There was a lot of late money, a lot of hot money that came in in November, uh, primarily from retail. That um, <clears throat> really was kind of chasing the trend, as as retail does, and then got shaken out really hard in December. They had some decent volumes. I mean, it was declining volume on the sell off, but but still, you know, substantial volumes. And there was a, a pretty good washout, but most of the stocks in the space are at or above or just right around a rising 200-day moving average. And we've had a, a nice consolidation, as you've mentioned, for you know the past two, three weeks-ish after that sell-off. So it looks like it's holding up pretty well. And I think that has a lot to do with just the fundamentals being um, pretty outstanding going forward for the year. I think really what's keeping more money to come in right now is kind of a, <clears throat> a concern about the broad market. And you actually hear a kind of a dovish fed come out today and you see that, that the sector is getting support. So um, until we see a big move, uh, next move up in the spot price, I think the market's going to chop around with the broad market until we see that move. Uh, Justin, before we let you go, please tell everybody where they can find you uh, and where they can maybe inquire about a subscription to the newsletter. Sure. Yeah. Um, everyone can find me at uraniuminsider.com. I'm also uh, pretty pretty prevalent on Twitter at Uranium Insider, and I can be reached on Twitter through DM um, or through the website contact. Um, and then I also do a, a daily podcast on YouTube called the Uranium Market Minute. Um, and if you go to that uh, channel and watch one of the videos, that is in the description, you can get a free sample of our newsletter. All right. Justin, it's good to have you back on. Uh, glad the holidays were well for you. And 2022 is looking like another uh, whopper of a year for the uranium market, if I do say so myself. I'm pretty encouraged after this conversation. Yeah, same here. I, I think um, I think things are lining up pretty well for uranium to, to continue the bull market this year. Yep. All right, everybody. Uh, that's a wrap with Justin Hewn. Thanks, everybody. Be well. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. Have a great day. You as well. Thanks, Trevor. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decision.